All right, let's open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 5. I know your bulletin says otherwise, but don't listen to that thing. They're actually going to be in a lot of different passages of Scripture, and so I was kind of going back and forth on what should be there, because we're going to be visiting so many, but today we're going to start in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, as we continue our series on the fruit of the Spirit, right? Those virtues, those experiences, those graces that the Holy Spirit produces in the hearts and lives of believers, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, and today we are looking at peace. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the peace that we have in and through Jesus Christ. We pray that it would only multiply in our lives, that we would be a people that not only experience it, but also work to offer it to others. Lord, teach us today and change us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So there are pastors that don't like sermon prep, right? The preparation of a sermon. Believe it or not, I don't know why they're, I think they should do something else, but there are pastors that do not enjoy the preparation time uh, that has to go into putting together a sermon. And um, I like it. I've always liked it. That's just one of the few things I like to do. And uh, so I, I I'm thinking about the passage. I'm reading all these other passages. I listen to this. I use a Bible app, right, as I'm preparing throughout the week. So it'll, it'll play verses of Scripture for me that relate to the passage. I read commentaries and books and everything. And of course, I listen to music. I find music that has the same themes, uh, hymns that relate to this idea of peace. We're singing some of those today. Uh, but the one song that's been stuck in my head all week long is the 1976 Boston classic, Peace of Mind, one of the greatest rock songs of all time in the top 10 of all time. That album, self-titled, so good. And what I love that song. That song is interesting to me. It's almost ironic in that uh, I listen to that song, I feel good. I feel like, do you feel good when you listen to the song? Peace, I just feel so good. The first, I remember the first time I heard it, I was like, it just, I felt at peace listening to that song. I felt peaceful, right? It's great, superficially, of course, right? But I still, I felt really good. It, like, it's like it elevated me, and I loved it, which is ironic because the song itself offers no peace. It's just about wanting it. It's not about actually having it. It doesn't offer any direction. It's just like, this is what I want. All I want is to have some peace of mind. That's it. And that's how, and I think they wrote it that way, maybe, maybe, because that is the universal experience. Most of us, most of us are looking for peace and not finding it. Most of us have a concept of what it is, but we're not really sure, and we're, we struggle to grasp it. And once we do, it, it seems slippery, right? It gets away. And this is certainly the Christian's struggle as well. For all the talk of peace, uh, most of us, most of us know the struggle of searching for it more than the grace of experiencing it. So we need to get down to what peace actually is and then what the Bible says about it. Because what the Bible says about it is different than what most people think peace is. Most people think peace is um, the, the absence of, of conflict, right? We think, oh, that's all that it is. Um, it's, you know, when war comes to an end, the conflict is over, and we all say we have peace, right? That, but 
And that's fine, that's one way to think about it, but that's not how the Bible talks about peace. In fact, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is shalom. And this became such a huge part of, of the, the Jewish way of thinking, the, of the Jewish theology, of, of Israel's heart, right? This idea of peace, this gift that God gives became so big to them that shalom became their greeting. That's how they would greet one another. Because for them, peace or shalom is not the absence of conflict. It is the presence of harmony and wholeness and wellness and unity. It's, it's the difference between saying, I don't have any enemies, the worldly kind of concept of peace. I don't have any enemies to the biblical concept being, I have true friends. That's more the concept of peace. Not just that you don't have enemies, but you have friends. So it's a, it's a freedom, right? Peace, biblically, is a, is a liberating freedom from various kinds of disturbance. But we're going to say it like this. We're going to put our own definition on it. And that word freedom is going to be really important to us as we, uh, as we work our way through a couple of passages. We'll define it this way. Peace is both freedom from disturbance and freedom in disturbance, freedom, liberty, right? To be brought out of one circumstance but then placed into another, right? And, and, and it, it is a, a freedom that gives birth to a kind of wholeness, wellness, and harmony. And so here's what we'll do. First, we're going to consider how this concept of peace that the Holy Spirit bears in our lives. We'll consider that this peace is established by Christ, number one. Number two, we'll see that this peace is experienced by faith. And number three, we will see how this peace is extended by the church. First, peace is established by Christ. We already read it. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. If this is your first time here, first time hearing something from the Bible, you already have already learned this lesson, that we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. We have been justified by faith, Paul says. Because we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The doctrine of justification, right, essentially is a kind of peace. It means that our sins have been forgiven, and that God has declared us to be righteous, even though we're not in our lives. He's declared us to be righteous, to be pure, to be without blemish. This is the gift that he gives. The removal of our debts, the cleansing of all of our sin and guilt, and then the gift of righteousness so that we are perfectly acceptable to him. That is the establishment of peace between sinners and God. Now, to get there, you have to actually understand that what the Bible says about the human condition is not flattering. Because the human condition in its current state is that of corruption and rebellion. We are not born with hearts that just naturally love God and the truth and are willing to find our identity in our maker. We are born corrupt, right? To be a sinner is to be at enmity with God, right? That's how the Bible describes it. That's how Paul describes it. To be at, a sinner is to be at enmity with to, Enmity is, is, is hostility, right? If you have enmity, uh, you are an enemy of God. You can think about it that way. So a, a heart of unbelief, a, a heart that is separated from God because of sin, is hostile in nature. There is hostility. So salvation really is very much peace, isn't it? Because it's deliverance, right? It's, it's freedom from disturbance, from the disturbance of our sin, 
where there is a harmony that is brought together. We have union with Christ, right? We're united to him, bonded to him. We're connected to him now by faith. And because of that, we are reconciled to God. This is justification and the basis of all of the peace that we will experience in this life. It's established by Christ. And it's not just an objective, forensic kind of salvation that we have where God wipes out the debt of sin and forgives us and declares us to be righteous in his sight. He also then invites us into communion, right? He invites us into fellowship with himself and because of that, with each other. Listen to another passage, Ephesians chapter 2. We'll start in verse 14, where Paul says, for he himself, for Jesus, for Jesus is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Communion, not just forgiveness, not just a declaration of our innocence, because a judge can declare you to be innocent. A judge can set you free. You don't have access to the judge. The peace that we have through Christ's death and resurrection is not only a declaration of our forgiveness, but an invitation into communion with God. We have access to him. This is a part of our salvation and a significant part of our peace. We have peace with God. Therefore, we have communion with God. We have the opportunity to have a relationship where he does not relate to us as merely as judge or as creator, but as loving father who's with us and and for us. And because of that, we have communion with each other. The two men that Paul talks about that are now one, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, that there was a time in in the history of redemption when God related to and covenanted with the nation of Israel alone. And he made promises to them and covenants to them that would eventually extend to the whole world. But for a long time, it was God speaking to and through Israel. And so there was this division. The people of God were contained in one nation, national identity, as well as a theological identity. But when Christ has come and fulfills all the promises made to and through Israel, it's opened up, and so now there is one new person, one new gathering, one new people of God, one new church, and that is made up of Jews and Gentiles. You see, because we have peace with God, we are brought together as one people, the ultimate means by which we can celebrate our differences without them dividing us. We can actually be one. So this is our peace, right? We have justification, we have communion. See, in other words, like the disturbance that, that peace is ultimately freeing us from, it can be hostility on the one hand, right? The, the presence of something really bad, or it can be deliverance and freedom from isolation. The disturbance can be isolation. It can just be the absence of something by bringing us together and giving us a kind of wholeness and harmony. So peace that is established by Christ 
We see it in the doctrine of justification. We experience it in communion with God and with each other. And this peace also extends to victory over our enemies, in particular, the devil. Listen to Romans chapter 16, verse 20. One of my favorite verses in Romans, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What what I like about this is, well, it's kind of metal. It's kind of aggressive sounding, which I like. The God of peace will crush the devil. But what I really like, what what I marvel at is that it says it's the God of peace that's going to do this. It's the God of peace that has to crush evil. And and it's because to pursue peace, and we'll talk about pursuing peace, arriving at a context of peace isn't always free of conflict or drama. Sometimes you have to fight for it. But it's that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's what I love. Like, in the midst of your difficulty and trials and tribulations, in the midst of the tempests of life, ultimately, I will protect you from the devil in such a way, from his attacks, from his, his aim at devouring you. I will protect you in such a way where you devour him. You will crush him. He will not crush you. That's a part of the peace that we have, right? Because we have this enemy, the devil, that's prowling around, and and there is peace. And in this case, not that we can be reconciled to the devil, but we can be safe from his attack and made victorious. This is our peace in Christ. Salvation. We talk about being saved. Are you saved? Talk about when did you get, I, I got saved in 1990 was when I would tell people I got saved. Salvation is essentially peace. That's essentially what it is, right? It's peace with God that extends into other realms and relationships. It's a peace with God uh, that we experience now in part, right, and later in whole. Like we have it now as a, as a present peace that is subjective and experiential, and that's what we're going to talk about next. Uh, but the objective where it's like to be delivered or to be freed from disturbance means that the disturbances themselves are gone. And that's something we experience in part here and there now. But there's always going to be tribulation. There's always going to be difficulty. What we do have is the ongoing promise that we can experience a freedom from, or freedom in disturbance, in the disturbance. All right, so that's what salvation is giving us uh, through Christ now. Um, it's a rest. It is a rest for your soul. If you're thinking about it simply like, what does it mean to have peace, to experience peace in the midst of chaos and craziness and heartache and discouragement and disappointment? Peace is rest. Now, you may not be able to rest your body and get off the treadmill, so to say, but your soul can find rest because it is a grace that God gives. So... This peace that we're talking about, big picture. We can have it, and we do have it in Jesus Christ. Like it's, it's a truth. It is a gift. Peace is established by Christ. But peace is experienced by faith. And the experience of faith is different from the objective reality of, of peace, I mean. So when I say that peace is experienced by faith, one of the things I, I'm trying to drive home is that um, you can have peace and not know it. Right? You can have peace and not know it. And if you don't know it, or don't understand it, uh, it's pretty hard to benefit from it. 
I remember this story from a long time ago, so I looked it up. Uh, this man's name was Hiro'o Onada. Anybody hear of Hiro'o Onada? Uh, he was a World War II Japanese soldier, officer, actually, um, who in 1944 was deployed to um, this island, Lubang, Lubang Island in the Philippines. And he was told, he was given orders, like, stay there, get your team together, hold that island, do not give up, do not surrender, whatever it takes. If you, if, if you're, you have to be willing to die to do this. So he was, he was deployed there in 1944. Of course, a year later, World War II comes to an end. And the Allied forces, uh, you know, take over the island. But he's in the bush with his team. They don't know the war is over. And so they're... They're sniping. They're doing guerrilla warfare. They haven't heard. They start dropping leaflets all over the island, these yellow leaflets all over. The war is over. The war is over. You can come on out. Everything's cool. I don't know, I don't know if they didn't get it. <laughs> the announcement was made. Peace was established, right, a kind of peace. The announcement was made, and they didn't know, so they kept on surviving as best as they could, foraging for food and fighting. That was 1944 when they started. You know how long they were there fighting? How long did they not know the war was over? 1974. They lost all that time because they didn't know that peace was there for the taking. It had been established. They didn't know. For whatever reason, they didn't get it. 30 years. And I'm telling you, I know this because I know it in my own experience and heart, and I know it from talking to many of you, Christians, you have peace that you do not often enough experience. It is there. And sometimes we don't know it, sometimes we forget, sometimes we just don't understand it. So that's what I want us to consider, right? What does it mean, like, to experience faith, right? If we're saying, like, well, a peace. If peace is experienced by faith... How does it work? So think of it as a mindset almost, right? It's a mindset. Um, in Romans chapter 8, in fact, we're going to read a few verses here. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Now consider everything we've said so far. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? No condemnation, there's peace with God. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. There is a mindset, right? And, and Paul's talking about, too, there is the mind that is set on the flesh. That means it is governed by, it is ruled by uh, the, the sinful desires of the heart. It, the, the mind that is set on the flesh is seeking self-gratification in its purest and most uh, 
uh, ready form, right? They, it is looking for immediate gratification through any means possible, which means it'll choose sin first because it's easy and it's present. It'll deny others while promoting self. It'll forget God while deifying self. The mindset on the flesh is hostile to God, right? It's automatically hostile, and it's just death. That's the mindset on the flesh. But then there is the mindset on the spirit. This is the mind that what? Submits itself to God's law or his word, right? And that's the, the mindset on the flesh can't do that, but the spirit does. The mindset, the mindset on the spirit is the one that meditates on, dwells upon, looks to the truth of God that is revealed in his word. We look to God and his character and his works and his promises, as well as his threatenings and everything else. We look at the word of God to help us to understand who he is and who we are and who we're made to be. And when we see all of that, especially in light of God's promises, like God's promise of peace, what do we have? We have life. We have peace, but it's a mindset because you know the danger. You know how easy it is to not just be distracted by the amount of negativity and, and dark news out there. If I just go onto Twitter, which I keep doing, if I just go onto Twitter and look, I get instantly annoyed, if not anxious or angry. And you know what? I don't have peace. And you know why? Because it's like a magnet for stupid. That's what Twitter is. It's just like a big pool where all the stupid runs into. And it's like it's Christians and non I'm not talking, it's, it's everybody. And it just, it drives me nuts. But in other words, there's so much negativity, it's hard to see anything else. I don't have to look for the stupid on Twitter. It's right there. I've got to hunt down the good stuff. And our tendency is to be captivated by or to be ruled by these negative things, these evil things, these awful things. And I'm not saying that we should ignore the reality. We shouldn't. We should understand what's happening in the world. We need to understand. We need some bad news. We've got to understand what's happening. We've got to pay attention, sure. But there's a reason Scripture tells us to meditate on the things that are above or to set our mind on the things that are true and noble, worthy, beautiful. Because it's only with a mind that is set on the spirit that is governed by the word that enables us to properly understand and contextualize the bad things that we have to deal with in our lives or in our culture or in our country. It's a mindset, first of all. So in other words, if you're going to experience peace, you have to be able to set your mind to it specifically to Christ, what he has done for us through his cross, through his resurrection, and to all of these promises, to all of God's word, it's a mindset. And we also have to understand that we're talking about an internal kind of peace, right? An internal kind of peace. It is, it is not a peace that, that flattens out the disturbances in our circumstances, but it is a peace that calms the disturbances in our hearts, right? Listen to Philippians chapter 4. Starting in verse 4. We read this a few weeks ago. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's not going to guard your home. It's not going to guard your family. It's not going to guard your friends. It's not going to guard your circumstances. 
There's no guarantees of what will befall you in this life. But the promise is whatever befalls you in this life, God offers you a peace that surpasses your comprehension. It is real and it is available, but it is only experienced by faith. And here we see what? It's connected to prayer. We pray with thanksgiving. We let our supplications be known to God. We talk to him, right? Because prayer is not just talking, is it? It's not just talking to God. It is a communion with him. It is a fellowship. It is a reliance upon, a dependency on. It is falling into the arms, into the lap of your God and Father and pouring your heart out to him. And he hears you and he cares and he strengthens you and he speaks to you truth by his word. No, we pray, we seek this peace, we seek God's help. And in that context of communion, exercising our faith, we do experience it. Listen to uh, Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. There's something I want to say here about this, and that is that um, if we are going to experience peace by means of faith, then we not only need God's word, we not only need prayer, but we also need his church. Because in, in, in Colossians 3.15, he's not simply saying, hey, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. He's saying, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart as you are engaging in with the community of faith in all of these other verses because he says in verse 12, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put on compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. I want you to bear with one another. I want you to forgive each other. I want you to experience the communion that you have with each other through the peace that Jesus has established and therefore peace has to rule in your heart. It's gonna be pretty hard for you to be at peace with other people if you don't experience the peace of God in your own hearts. All this to say, to experience peace by faith, we need to understand that we're talking about an internal quality that changes us and not our circumstances. And yes, we have it, we have it in the bad times. That's usually where you actually are more noticeable about the peace, about the gift, right? When you need it, and then when you find it, you have a strange, incomprehensible peace in the midst of the difficulty in John 16, 33, Jesus said, uh, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you're going to have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So Jesus says, you're going to exist in, in two places. You're going to exist in the world, but when you're in the world, you're going to exist in me. So you're not just living in the world. You're living in the world in me, and in me you're going to have peace. I give you peace. The world gives you trouble. That's what Jesus says. And if you live long enough, and some of you didn't even have to live very long to experience it because your childhoods were just broken and horrible. But everybody eventually learns, yeah, the, uh, the world is going to offer you trouble. And what Jesus offers us is a peace that the world cannot, that transcends our circumstances, a rest for our souls, uh, a freedom in the disturbance. That's when, that's when peace is at its sweetest when it exists in the contrast of what is so bitter in our lives. It's the kind of peace that overcomes fear and anxiety, right? 
I'm not talking about clinical fear, depression, and anxiety, but I'm talking about what is common to all of us. Fear and anxiety exists in our lives because of the unknown or because of danger. And in Christ, he doesn't say the danger will go away, but he says the power, the destructive force that danger can have on the soul is taken away through the presence of peace. Peace is experienced by faith, and if it's experienced by faith, that means that it must be like every other grace in the Christian life. Peace must be cultivated. You're going to hear this for all of the fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. These are gifts from God, but to experience them, they have to be cultivated. Because these graces can be, can be big or small. They can be growing or they can be atrophying away. Just like joy, just like faith, and peace is the same. Listen to Psalm 119, verse 165. The psalmist says, Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I stumble a lot. It's not because I'm getting old. It's been my whole life. I fall upstairs. I don't fall downstairs. I, I, I slip downstairs, but I fall hard upstairs. Start jogging upstairs, both hands, hit the steps, super embarrassing. Everybody sees. And if they don't see, it feels like they see. And so like, I'm always stumbling. It's, and so it's interesting to me like, to think about, like, well, there's a, there's a literal stumbling, and then there's a metaphorical stumbling in our lives where we stumble over difficulties and temptations or spiritual attacks. And how can we avoid stumbling? Right? With somebody who's clumsy like me, I'm prone to it. How do we avoid stumbling? Right? We need peace to keep our feet steady. Right? So when there is chaos and disorder or destruction in our lives, when things are out of order and we don't know what to do, uh, we, we learn here that peace is what will stabilize our footing. Okay. Well, where does that peace come from? Well, we said it comes from God. It's connected to faith. Okay, how do we cultivate it then? He says, it's those who love your law. The ones who love your law are the ones who have peace. They don't have peace. They have great peace. Great peace. Great peace are the ones who love your law. That's what, they, that's what they experience. Peace in the midst of difficulty, this internal peace. It's cultivated. So yes, we're back to the word. We're back to prayer. These are how the things, uh, these are the tools that God gives us to essentially stimulate our faith so that it grows and is more robust. So peace is established by Christ. Peace is experienced by faith, but peace is extended by the church. And I know that that can be a hard thing for some people to hear because some bad churches. I mean, church, churches have a bad rap, right? But the reason so many churches have a bad rap is because some churches have a bad rep, and the reason they have a bad rep is because they're just the worst. Some churches are the worst. It's okay. You can be honest about it. Every family has that brother or that uncle that, you know, is the worst. My family did. I said who it was in the first service. I saw the faces of everybody. I won't do it again. But he's dead. And it wasn't my dad. Anyways, 
Some families, right, a lot of families have members that are just toxic and dangerous, and they're just, you have to, like, that. hey, listen, you know, I love them, but I don't know what to do with them. They're a train wreck. And the truth is that there are a lot of churches out there that have done real harm. There are congregations that have been corrupt, and there are pastors that have been corrupt, and people have been truly wounded. And so when somebody comes along and says, hey, listen, the peace uh, is, it, the, of, of God is supposed to be extended by the church, and you think, like, ugh, the church, I understand. But hear me out. I'm not talking about an institution. I'm talking about you. You are the means by which God extends peace to the world. You are the church. You. That's all of us, right? Yes, of course, the institution matters. You don't have a church unless you have... Believers covenanting together under the rule of Scripture with organized officers and the administration of the sacraments and the preaching of the word and the exercise of discipline and all these things. Yes, the church is an absolute essential. Local churches. Without local churches, there is no church at all. But I'm not talking about the institution. I'm talking about us. We are the means by which peace is extended because we are called peacemakers, right? We bear the ministry of reconciliation. But Jesus said that, right? Blessed are the peacemakers in Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. I like it because some preachers are like, notice uh, every preacher who preaches on this, at least, at least their first time, they're always like, they say, uh, it doesn't say blessed are the peace lovers. It says blessed are the peacemakers. So, you know, be a peacemaker. And that's true. That, that's, that, that's true. But you need to be a peace lover first because you're not going to be effective at making peace if you don't actually want it, if you don't actually love it, you don't, if you don't actually want other people besides you, people that are against you to experience it. So yes, we are peacemakers. It's who we're called to be as Christians. That means that it is our God-given responsibility to seek it out, to extend it. And yes, we do this by means of preaching the gospel. Yes, of course, because we want to see people reconciled to God. But that's not the end of it, because just like God reconciles us to himself, he then reconciles us to each other, so we do the same. The work towards peace is a part of the responsibility of the Christian life. And I'm not just talking about politically and all that. I mean in your life. Listen to Romans 12, 18. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible... So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It's all on you. Because I know what we're like. You're like, well, you know, I would, but. Because it's not always possible. But if it is possible at all, then it's on you. Strive to make it happen. That's what Hebrews says. Strive to be at peace with everyone. Hebrews 12, 14. It's, it's, It's put on us to be the ones who initiate, the ones who seek it out. It's not just kind of wishing for it and and wishing it was different and hoping. It is to pursue it, to pursue peace with everyone. See, it's easy easy to pursue peace with your friends when you get into a fight. Like, okay, like uh, I've known Steve McCoy since 1997, I think, 98, 97. I've known Pastor Pat, Pat back there, Pat Pat Aldridge. I've known Pat since 1991. When you know somebody that long and you get into a fight, because sometimes they're wrong about stuff and I got to correct them. When you get into a fight, uh, sometimes you have to apologize, right? And it's 
easier to do when you love the person. Like, okay, yeah, I, I, I was wrong, or you know, I'll say I was wrong for the sake of the relationship, even though I don't think I was. Like, you'll make the amends. Why? Because you care about the person and you value peace. You want there to be an establishment of peace. Um, it's, it's much easier to do. It's a lot harder to do uh, when you're trying to establish peace with your enemy, and yet you're called to do that too. You're called to seek peace with everyone, not just your buds, not just your friends, not just your family. You're supposed to seek peace with everyone, even people that are out to get you, if it's possible. Not always possible. So far as it depends on you, we should strive for it. You see, because the goal, this is important, the goal here in seeking peace is not to simply quiet the conflict. That's what a lot of us are doing. A lot of us don't like conflict. Ooh, fights. I don't like it. Ooh. And so you just, you want to wrap it up. You want to bring it to an end and just want everything to settle down. That's not the goal. The goal is not to just end the conflict. Listen to uh, Romans chapter 14, verse 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Mutual upbuilding. See, the goal is not to smooth out the rough edges of, of our conflict. It's not just to keep things quiet. It's not just making things calm again. So all calm down. It's not just about that. It is about seeking the upbuilding of the other person. We're supposed to be pursuing this kind of good, even with people that we're at odds with. We pursue peace by seeking their Flourishing, their harmony, their shalom. That's the idea. We're building people up. That's, that's, that's the goal. See, peace, peace looks for and finds or creates order, right? A kind of order, not a, a suffocating kind of like controlling order, but it, it finds and creates order that allows there to be safety and, and structure, purpose. Things, relationships work better when they're at peace because there is an order to things. We understand who we are and what we're called to be. Now, the problem with extending peace, right? Peace is extended by the church. The problem, the real problem with extending peace is that it's hard. Like, it is hard because, listen, we have peace with God. That's a gift. You do nothing for that. You just have it. You believe in Christ, boom, you've got peace with God. Now, this is the foundation of everything else that we're going to talk about, right? But that's a gift. Do nothing for it. But then there's the experience of peace, which, because it's connected to faith, you've got to cultivate it. It ebbs and it flows. It comes in and goes. Sometimes it's big. Sometimes it's small, right? And so like, that's a little bit different. And then you're talking about extending peace to others. This is hard because it requires things like humility and love and courage. It requires humility. Ex extending peace to people requires humility because you're extending and working towards peace with someone who may not want to receive it. It requires a, a kind of humility because you have to value them as much as you value yourself. And it doesn't just take humility, it takes love. Right? You've got to have a concern for their well-being, a genuine kind of love. And listen, it doesn't, doesn't have to be the deepest kind of most profound love for the person, but you have to have a Christian love for somebody which, which seeks their good at great cost to yourself. It takes humility. It takes love. It takes, I'll tell you what it takes. It takes courage. 
It takes courage because I know you think, like, well, fighting takes courage. Sure, fighting takes courage. Uh, but some of you all just like it. You like, you like it. It comes easier to you. Like, let's fight. Uh, if you, by, by the way, if you, if you like to fight, uh, then I would encourage you, I would challenge you to try and make peace. We'll see how tough you are then. Because it takes, I think, greater courage to establish peace than to merely engage in the fight. Fighting is sometimes necessary. But the goal is always to establish peace. It takes courage to step into that. And it also takes, it takes forgiveness. You have to be willing to forgive. You will be the hang-up. You will be the roadblock to peace if you cannot forgive. People that have hurt you, robbed you, lied. Now, when I think about this, humility, love, courage, and forgiveness, yeah, I'm not so great at all those things. <laughs> Maybe one at a time, once a week, but all of them at the same time is a lot. Humility, love, courage, and forgiveness. We see this, and we should recognize, well, I don't quite measure up. I'm, I'm broken in that, so how can I actually then extend peace if I can't do it? Like, I'm just going to feel like a failure, and how am I going to grow in, in the experience of, of peace if, if my faith is, is so fragile I feel like, I feel like, I feel like I'm Boston in 1976, singing more about peace than actually experiencing it. So where do we go? You know where we go if you're regular, if you're part of our family. We go to Jesus, right? We go to Jesus because Jesus is the Sunday school answer, the true answer. He is the answer to our deepest questions here. He is the solution to our problem here about peace. Yes. Jesus has established peace between God and sinners through his life, death, and resurrection. But he remains our peace. He is our peace to experience even today because what he has done for us is he has fulfilled everything that is required for peace to be ours. Let me give you one example, one passage of scripture. We're going to wrap it up with this. Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. It says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took Jesus with them in the boat, and just as he was. And, and other boats were with him, and a great wind, a wind storm, arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But when he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, I love this because we have, the, we have everything that we need to know about Jesus and this concept of peace. There is trial and tribulation. There is a literal tempest destroying the boat. The boat is sinking. Jesus is at rest. He has peace. He's sleeping in the stern. And then the disciples come down and they're like, what are you doing? Why are you sleeping? By the way, this is what many of the psalmists do in the book of Psalms. They'll be like, hey, God, I am drowning down here. I am hurting down here. My, I am on fire down here and I don't see you doing anything. Are you asleep? What are you doing? So many of the psalms start that way. They don't end that way. They start that way because they're honest about their experience. And this is oftentimes a part of our experience, even as believers. We experience tempest and tribulation. We experience difficulty and chaos. And we don't see what God is doing. And we go, hey, what are you doing? 
And so Jesus wakes up, or, well, they woke him up. And he issued a rebuke, not to the disciples, which is what I would have done. I'd have been like, what are you, shut up, what are you doing? You're waking me up. You're doubting me. You're waking me up with unbelief. Like, I, just, I don't have time for this. He rebukes the wind. He rebukes the sea. He woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? And have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this? This is Jesus, the Prince of Peace, promised in Isaiah 9, 6. He is the one who is peace himself. He establishes it because it is his. He brings a kingdom of peace. He offers salvation of peace. He, he, he gives it, he gives himself to us, and in doing so, he gives us peace. And every point at which we uh, are disbelieving like the disciples, we're, 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 we're distrusting, we're, we're, we're freaking out, we have no peace, we look to Jesus who had it perfectly, and he does extend it to us. I'll say this, the promise of peace is real. Like many of you, I know what it's like to be in situations that are outside of your control, which just bring with it a kind of dark, chaotic pain, panic even. What do you do? There is peace to be had. Now, the promises that God gives peace, there is no promise of the measure of peace. Because sometimes the peace that we get is adequate for the day, right? And it's undeserved and it's great. But oftentimes, I find that God gives us a kind of peace that is enough to settle our hearts in the midst of the storm, but also keeps us looking for that peace that we still need so we keep our eyes fixed on him. The promise of peace is real. The second thing I want to say is to anyone here who is not yet a believer, your fundamental problem in your life, not your job, not your relationships, uh, not the economy, uh, not illness, not disease, your fundamental deepest problem in life is that you are not at peace with your maker. It is your fundamental problem. You need peace, the peace of Christ that grants you not only the forgiveness of sins but communion with God and it, it then empowers you to experience this peace in an incomprehensible way in this life in your circumstances. So for all of us, I think it's, it's the same thing, right? The same move. We all have the same move here. We're made to, to experience peace. We don't have it naturally in this fallen condition, in this dark world, but it is offered to us in this fallen condition and dark world, and we find it in Jesus. So we look to him. We look to him together. We believe However small our faith is, we believe. And when we do, when we exercise that faith, we do experience God's grace, and it only grows from there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would uh, grant us with a growing sense of peace, that we would have more than we even ask for. Whatever we ask for, Lord, we know that we don't deserve it, but we need it. And we know that you are generous and good. Pray that you would give us an abundance of peace, that we would walk in it, 
that we would so experience this rest of our souls that we would be eager to extend it to those around us. Lord, we pray that in all of this, people would cherish the Prince of Peace more than the peace itself. May he reign as king in each of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.